welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is still a revolutionary act. Welcome back, folks. It is season two of the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast. We've um, just celebrated our one year anniversary, tens of thousands of downloads so appreciative of that. We want to keep it going, spread the word. And, uh, you know, we're heading into a major election, one of the most important in our lifetimes. People say that all the time, but this is really consequential. So there'll be plenty to talk about on the podcast and uh, lots of good guests and conversations. And who knows, this is, uh, we're only in fall of 20 of 2019, 2020 is right around the corner. We're only a couple months away from the first votes being cast. So I'm happy to be back. It was uh, about a month and a half long hiatus, kind of like Congress. I went into hiatus in August and I know people were complaining. They're like, oh, we missed the podcast. And I, I hear you, but I needed to take a break. I needed to recharge. This is exhausting, <laughs> as you can imagine. It's exhausting dealing with this administration, dealing with what this president is doing every day. And just like everybody needs a little bit of a break to regroup, I did too. So, but I'm happy to be back. I'm fully recharged and ready to go. And I have a great episode up ahead for everyone. Uh, Ryan Lizza, who is the new chief political correspondent for Politico, he's joining me as my guest. We're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic debates and the news coverage of the vice of the former vice president Biden, whether it's fair, what, what it, whether it isn't, and how consequential that may be in the long run for his candidacy, will it hurt him? Um, I have my thoughts about that, and you can hear about that conversation coming up shortly. And Ryan is also a CNN political analyst, so we see each other very often at CNN. We've had many green room conversations about different political things, so. This is a good conversation where we can kind of, we air some of that out. <laughs> some of our uh, green room conversations uh, come to light during this conversation. So stay tuned for Ryan Lizza. Ryan, oh, also just as a preview, Ryan is also the journalist behind the takedown of Anthony Scaramucci. You guys might remember back in the summer of 2017 when Scaramucci was the uh communications director for the White House for a very brief period, he gave a rather salty interview to a reporter who recorded it, and it ultimately was the demise of Scaramucci. He said some rather interesting things about Ryan's previous and Steve Bannon. So yeah, Ryan Liz is that guy, and he has some new details that he had not really discussed in detail publicly before that he shares about that incident on this episode. So stay tuned for that. It's a it's a very fascinating story. Um, while I was gone, if you guys were following me on social media, you saw that I took a trip to Europe for almost two weeks with my husband. We usually travel to Italy as often as we can um, during September, end of August, September, because our wedding anniversary is September 4th, and we got married in Sicily in 2013. So Italy holds a very special place in my heart, plus I have Italian heritage on my mom's side, and I just feel very connected to Italy. And 
So this year, we were able to combine a trip to Italy with also a trip to France, to the French Riviera, because I found an amazing airfare on Kayak. Shout out to Kayak. It's a great tool. If you guys don't use it for your flights and trips, you should. Um, And no, they didn't pay me to say that. I'm just saying that because (laughs) as a happy customer... But um, I found this amazing airfare to Nice, France for like $600 round trip during the uh, dates that we were looking to travel. Now, I really had no desire to go to the south of France, frankly, because Italy was my focus. But with an airfare like that, it was just too good to pass up. So we used Nice, France as our home base and spent half the trip there and half the trip in Calabria, the southern part of Italy, which is where the boot kicks Sicily. That's Calabria. So it worked out great. We were able to basically, it was like two vacations in one. And um, I have to say, the south of France was beautiful. We went to Monaco, Monte Carlo. We went to the famous um, uh, Casino Royale, casino there in Monte Carlo, very made famous by the James Bond movies. Of course, we had to have martinis there, shaken, not stirred. And I posted a bunch of these photos on on social media, but it was just a great time. I mean, the super yachts there, they have these mega yachts. If you're into mega super yachts, yeah, a lot of them are docked in Monaco or somewhere else along the south of France. In Cannes, in Saint-Tropez, um, in Juan Lapins, which is where we actually stayed, which is a great area right um, outside of Nice, near the airport. Another beautiful area we preferred there, and I'm glad we stayed there, as opposed to Nice. We only spent one day in Nice, but it was cool. The, the beaches, the water, I mean, beautiful colors, the food, the wine. We just had a great time. And um, and Italy, Calabria, that was the first time we'd been to that region, amazing people. The seafood was spectacular. The beaches. Uh, We had a chance to sail out to the Aeolian Islands. And if anyone knows, um, there's a couple, there's, there's Lippery, Volcano, Ponorea, and Stromboli. And Stromboli has been in the news lately because there's an active volcano on that island and it's been erupting pretty violently and it's always active and it has lava flows that that percolate from it all the time and they do these night sails to Stromboli where you can it's called Stromboli by night where you can actually see the glow of the lava coming from from the volcano freaking cool as hell normally you're allowed to go onto Stromboli onto the the island itself but since the eruptions in July somebody died because they hike it and you can like it's it's pretty cool black sand beaches the whole thing but unfortunately, a couple people died from the, the eruption in July. So the Italian government shut down tourist access to Stromboli. Um, you can only go by boat. So and hang out offshore and watch it, watch the lava, which was really cool. I mean, it was it was really neat. I don't know how many people get to do that. So blessed that we had that opportunity. And uh, we went to another town called Tropea. And it's called the Coast of the Gods. And there's a lot of it's steeped in mythology, Greek and Roman mythology. And another town called Scylla down the coast. That part of the Calabrian coast is called the Violet Coast because of the beautiful sunsets there. And we stayed in this town called Scylla. And they have a fishing village called Kinalea. And where the people literally live right on the water. They don't have any yards. They don't have garages. They have like little areas where they pull their boats and they live in these concrete houses that are like right literally on the water. Beautiful, amazing swordfish, which is what they're known for. We just had a blast. So 
Anyone who's ever been to that part of the world uh, can understand the appreciation we have for it. And if you've never been, I encourage everyone travel if you can. You, you don't have to spend an arm and a leg. You can find ways, especially nowadays, if you're savvy with internet travel. We Airbnb'd most of our, our stay, and it worked out great. You get to you get to hang out with the locals. You get to get a real different experience when um, when you do that most of the time if you do your research. So anyway, so that's kind of what I what I was up to during the hiatus. Of course, I'm insane, so I had Wi-Fi. I had access to Twitter and social media, so I was monitoring what was going on while I was gone. I can't help myself. I know. I got yelled at by a couple people on Twitter to tell me to stop tweeting because I'm on vacation and I know. But, uh, you know, the the crazy doesn't stop just because I'm away. So um, a lot, a lot, a lot has gone on since the last episode. Way too much to recap. We all don't want to relive it really anyway, but um, just know that I've been paying attention. And... Some of the stories that have uh, this week that have stood out to me is just the absolute erratic, more and more erratic behavior on Twitter coming from Trump. And and it's not just the, the his weird obsession with like President Obama and his Netflix deal or going after John Legend and Christy Teigen over criminal justice reform. Like that kind of stuff is really inconsequential. It's just further examples of how mentally unstable Trump is and how unfit he is to be president with a personality disorder like he has. He's a liar. He continues to lie every day about things big and small. These are all problematic. But I think what's understated, grossly understated, is the threat that Trump's behavior and these pathologies pose to the country from a national security perspective. The president of the United States really has unilateral influence over our foreign policy, over our standing in the world, over our relationships with our allies. You know, domestic policy, we have the guardrails. We Allegedly, right? We've got Congress, we have the courts to kind of temper any kind of crazy that the president tries to attempt. But with foreign policy, there's less of those checks and balances available. And that was by design because I don't think the founding fathers ever anticipated a president quite like Trump. And they entrust that whoever the president is has the best interests of the United States in mind when they, you know, when they're conducting the business of 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 the country. But Trump just violates that at every turn, at every turn, whether it's not divesting fully from his businesses to this this nonsense about bringing the G7 to his Doral property in Florida next year, uh, profiting off the presidency. You know, he continues to rage tweet about these things and how it's all fake news. It's not fake news, people. These are facts. And frankly, if he wanted to dispel whether he was losing or making money from the presidency, he'd release his tax returns, right? Why why are you still hiding them? Because he's probably got a lot of shit to hide that's unsavory. So, you know, we'll just use your common sense. And you know that it strikes a nerve anytime we talk about his businesses or his company because that's his his baby. His whole self-worth is caught up in his image and his money or lack thereof. So... 
this kind of stuff is really, that should really upset people. I mean, Trump has done so many things that are worthy of impeachment. I run out of fingers of how many, this, 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 this. I mean, the list is long. From the obstruction of justice stuff and the abuse of power that was found in the Mueller report, those things are impeachable in and of themselves. To his behavior with dictators, whether it's Kim Jong-un or Putin or whom the hell ever, this stuff, oh, Saudi Arabia, like, it's insane. But yet he seems to get a pass on this. And I do really feel like like his his negligence and his incompetence and instability on foreign policy is understated. And the Democratic candidates, instead of cannibalizing each other over, you know, 10 billion or 100 billion differences in healthcare or talking about confiscating people's guns, they need to really show the American people that they can lead this country on a world stage as well, because that's where they have the most influence policy, they can't get shit passed unless Congress uh, passes it anyway. So all of these policy disputes, I get people want to know positions, but most people tune that out. So and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and my thoughts on the on the last Democratic debate in a, in a few minutes, but it might lead into the interview with Ryan. But I just feel like, especially for Joe Biden, dude, you were the vice president for eight years why aren't you demonstrating to people more and more about your foreign policy experience? You were in the Senate for decades. You were part of the foreign, uh, I think, chairman of foreign uh, foreign affairs committee uh, in the Senate at one point. It's like people need to know they can feel comfortable with whoever the next president is going to be is not going to conduct foreign policy by tweet, for God's sakes. We do not have a national security advisor. However you felt about John Bolton, at least he understood the role. At least he was someone there who would challenge the president. Well, that's why he got fired. I mean, you don't have to agree with John Bolton's policy positions. That's fine. But he was an adult in the room. He's a smart guy. He knew he knew what was going on in the world. He wasn't a complete sycophant, which is like Secretary of State Pompeo, which is why he ended up getting fired. Because if I recall, while I was overseas, um, one of the times that I mistakenly opened Twitter to see what was happening, I see this bullshit about Donald Trump was about to invite the Taliban to Camp David for negotiations the week of September 11th. Are you freaking kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I, I like screamed out. I went, are you freaking kidding me? My husband was like, what now? <laughs> and I told him he just shook his head. My husband was on duty on on uh, nine on nine eleven in two thousand one. He was um it was his rookie year with his agency, and you know he remembers it very clearly in Washington D.C. So I mean, I, all, most of us were touched by nine eleven in some way, especially if you're from New York, New Jersey, or lived in Washington. And just the the could you imagine if anyone else had uh, proposed such an asinine, insensitive ill-advised thing is that the Taliban on U.S. soil, those bastards who are responsible for harboring our enemies that attacked us on 9-11. That's impeachable right there, for God's sakes. So, you know, John Bolton, I guess that was the final straw for him and not everything else, not Helsinki, not the, the love affair with Kim Jong-un, no, no, those things. It was that. Well, you know, I guess everybody has a, has a breaking point. 
but we don't have a national security advisor. We don't have a national security council that's functioning properly. We don't have a permanent director of national intelligence. We don't have a deputy director of national intelligence. We have an acting Department of Homeland Security secretary. We have an acting deputy Department of Homeland Security secretary. There are dozens of positions empty in the Pentagon. What? This country is not functioning the way it should from a national security perspective. And I don't think enough attention is being paid to that because Donald Trump does not know how to govern because he runs around and tells people that he's the final say, he doesn't need advisors, and he knows more than the generals. Does that make the American people feel safe? I don't think so. And they shouldn't. There's major, major stuff going on in the world. There is considerable global instability happening. Now, that may not be people launching bombs, albeit that's what happened in Saudi Arabia recently with the drone strikes and is Iran behind it or the, you know, Houthi rebels in Yemen who are funded by Iran behind it. Who knows? But this is serious stuff. And we do not have a functional apparatus in place to deal with it. God forbid we had another 9-11 style attack on U.S. soil. God help us. Because I don't think this administration could handle it. I really don't. I really don't. And that frightens me. The prospect of something like that, a disaster. I don't think Donald Trump or this administration would be able to guide us through a national disaster. God forbid. I really pray that nothing like that happens until we can get him out of there. But this is... um, but we've got to start paying more attention to this. And I really hope the media decides to start focusing on this more. It matters. National security matters. Uh, James Mattis, who was our General Mattis, one of the most highly decorated Marines in our country. You know, he was the SecDef for a while. He resigned in protest and he's been quiet. People have been clamoring for him to talk about what he saw, what he experienced, why exactly he resigned. They want him to be honest about what a freaking lunatic Donald Trump is and what a threat he is to the country. But he refuses to because he thinks that it's uh, it's not proper for him as a, as a Marine general to disparage the commander in chief, current commander in chief. I hear you. And I know that that code of conduct and honor is really important. But I think at some point you have to look at are you doing the country a disservice by not speaking out? The American people deserve to know what they're dealing with with this guy from people who are well-respected because Trump has done a hell of a job um, discrediting the mainstream media and discrediting sources of information that are truthful. And now people don't know what to believe. Everything's fake news. Everything's fake news, fake news. It's not so frustrating, but it's got to start coming from people who were there. I mean, Scaramucci uh, has has had this change of heart. And we talk about I talk about this with Ryan Lizza. I ask his, his opinion on this, but he's turned around and said, look, I had enough. The sender back chance, the the attacks on, and the erratic behavior on Twitter. I've had enough and we've got to get Trump out of there. Yeah. All right. But he's not the best messenger. You know, he's not. He's not exactly a credible messenger on this. He's like half a step away from Omarosa, unfortunately. Maybe he's well-intentioned. Maybe he had a change of heart. If so, good for him. But he's not going to be the one that's going to convince people. We've got to have the people like Dan Coats, 
who was basically run out of being director of national intelligence, well-respected Republican senator. Uh, speak out, man. You guys got to talk about what a freaking shit show this has been and how this is endangering the United States. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's frustrating um, and alarming. You know, it's alarming. Every day we, we're starting now to see more and more stories come out out of the intelligence community about things that are going on, which I find interesting because usually, the, you know, the intelligence community is very secretive. You don't hear too much about details about things and for good reason. You know what I mean? Like spy stuff and intel stuff is meant to be top secret for a reason. But you can feel that there is a sense of frustration and concern within the intelligence community because of Trump's attacks on them, the attacks on uh, the CIA, the DNI, uh, on sources and methods, This everything that's gone on with the Russian investigation. And there's a story out this week from Yahoo News that details the Russians counterintelligence operations against us and how they were able to basically crack our encrypted communications, how they were able to decode what the FBI was doing with their surveillance on them on U.S. soil. And it's a long form story worth the read in Yahoo News. And we've basically known since 2012 that they were on to us. And it gets into how they were able to, not how they were, but that we found out. We don't know how long they were doing it, but we didn't really find out the extent of it till 2012. And um, their interception of, of radio communications and, and uh, two-way radios and things like that. And we found out also that when Barack Obama, his administration kicked out a bunch of Russian diplomats and shuttered a couple of their facilities across the country, that it was initially reported that it was about the Russian interference in the election. Now we find out three years later that they also were aware of this counterintelligence operation and the success of it. And uh, that was another reason why they targeted those specific people and those specific facilities. Here we are, you, you know, with the Trump administration cozying up with this bromance between Trump and Putin, him saying that he doesn't believe that Putin was involved in the election interference and just completely undermining the intelligence community. I can't imagine being a career intelligence officer under this administration. I don't know how they go to work every day, maybe because they feel like if we don't, who else is who's going to replace us? And they're doing it for the good of the country, I'm, I'm assuming, to try to keep us safe from our threats. But this kind of stuff matters. And this president is ill-equipped, doesn't want to, who knows why, whether it's compromise, whether it's money, whether he just has an affinity for dictators, who knows, or a combination of all of them. But they all endanger us every day, which is more reason why Trump has got to go. Got to go. Um, and speaking of that, the Democrats and impeachment... They need to shit or get off the pot, as my grandmother used to say. And I think I've said this more than once. They've been dilly-dallying around with the impeachment inquiry, impeachment proceeding stuff for months now. And they've really missed the boat as far as momentum and building the case to the American people why an impeachment inquiry is necessary and appropriate. It absolutely is. If you just took like two or three of the things that Donald Trump has done they would be impeachable offenses without question if it had been anybody else. You start to combine all of these things, 
I mean, this guy is completely unfit, but the Democrats are, are unable for whatever reason to make the case clearly to the American people and get their heads out of their asses and have these inquir- the impeachment inquiry and lay it all out. This isn't hard, folks. It's all right there. But Nancy Pelosi's worried about the moderates in, in swing districts because that's not what they're focusing on. They're focusing on health care and policies and things. I get that. I, I really do. But part of it is if you make a persuasive enough argument and demonstrate to people why this is necessary, I, I think it wouldn't harm them. Even if you can't get them removed, it's your duty to bring up the impeachment. I mean, just re- go back and reread what our founding fathers said about this and why they set the impeachment process up in the freaking first place. If this kind of behavior is not impeachable, then what the hell is in the, in the future? I just don't know. But the Democrats need really to get their shit together. Jerry Nadler and everyone now, it's now September. They're still dilly-dallying around about whether they're going to call Stormy Daniels. And man, the hell, uh, you know, ugh, that's not... That's just tabloid stuff. I mean, it's it's important that the president of the United States paid off a porn star to be quiet during an election. Yeah. But that's not what's going to move people. It's not. It's this what's going on with Russia and his his uh, corruption and the abuse of power. That's what's going to that's what's going to move people and how it affects them. The trade war with China killing our farmers in the Midwest you know, stuff like that, kitchen table issues that affect people every day. So if people feel less safe, they'll make a change. I remember when I worked on the George Bush campaign and the campaigns back in the early 2000s, where you had the security moms after 9-11. They were huge, a huge voting block and a huge reason why um, Donald Trump, God forbid, George W. Bush was reelected because they felt that he would keep the country safe. I don't know. Where, where are those messages now? If Democrats want to win, they got to stop this. They really do. Because we've got a lot of foreign policy messes that the president and a, and a functioning government needs to address. Really. I mean, the situation with Iran, that's no joke either. Iran is a formidable opponent. They have, they're well-funded. They have a very um they're the number one state sponsor of terrorism around the world they are fanatical and they have help from our other enemies like russia north korea and china and this is a delicate situation you know what's happening with with the uh, saudi oil situation and oil prices and you know world oil supply the you can't just willy-nilly um try to fix these problems or negotiate by tweet. I mean, the United Nations General Assembly happens every year in September in New York, where all the heads of state of the major countries in the world gather at the UN. And it's um, a lot of pomp and circumstance and who meets with whom and who shakes whose hand, that kind of stuff matters in the world diplomacy stage. And then Trump is running around lying, accusing the, the media of making things up about him saying he wouldn't, that he would meet with the head of Iran, Rouhani, the president of Iran, with no preconditions. He said it. It's on video. We have it. His officials have said it. Pompeo said it. Mnuchin said it. 
Trump himself said, I would meet with them. They want to meet fine. No preconditions. That used to be a big deal back in the day, by the way. The idea of meeting with these kinds of dictators who are enemies of the U.S. without preconditions. All of a sudden, nobody cares anymore. But we're fake news for reporting and showing the video of Trump actually saying these things. Well, what's he going to do now? The U.N. General Assembly is next week. Is he going to meet with Rouhani? What kind of deals is he going to strike with him now? I, I, I don't know. It's nuts. Iran shot down one of our drones. They've been involved in provo- uh, you know, provocations in that region of the world for decades. It's escalated recently since we pulled out of the, the Iran nuclear deal. Now, that nuclear deal had its problems. I did not support it at the time. It did not include missile, ballistic missiles. It didn't include military installation inspections. I mean, there were a lot of issues with it. But if you're going to pull out of it, then have a coalition to renegotiate it and get something better. You don't just pull out of it with no alternative. And meanwhile, we've isolated our, our allies more and more, who we would need for, for another deal to happen. So it's a mess. It's a mess. I wish I had better news. But speaking of a mess... The Democratic primary, folks. Guys, what are y'all doing? Arguing over nonsense, things that don't really matter. The last Democratic debate was very, um, certainly energetic, way too long. We've got to get all these people off the damn stage. Enough now. 10, 15, 20 candidates, uh, come on. A bunch of you folks do not stand a chance. Stop it with the vanity candidacies. Get off the stage. There should be no more than four or five max at this point. The American people are already exhausted. They are uninterested in the lesser known candidates. Whether they have merit or not, it doesn't matter. It's just the reality. And this going after Biden over his gaffes and some of the more inarticulate things that he said or stories he's told that are dated. You know what? Who gives a shit? This, does that really matter in the greater scheme of things? Joe Biden was a heartbeat away from the presidency for eight years under Barack Obama. He is beloved. He is a wellspring of good faith from all demographics in the Democratic Party. Now, all of a sudden, because he's not woke enough to some on the fringe left, he somehow doesn't deserve to be the nominee. I've got news for you people. Joe Biden's the only one that can beat Donald Trump in the places you need to win. You don't need to win California and New York. You need to win Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Elizabeth Warren's not going to win there. Bernie Sanders sure as hell isn't going to win anywhere except, I don't know, maybe Vermont. So they need to wake up and look at the bigger scheme of things. Honestly, the media narrative here is killing me. And I just feel like, could Joe Biden be more articulate in these debates? Absolutely. Could he answer these questions a bit better? Yes. But this is not, this is really no indication of how well someone will or will not govern. It's not. He knows what he's doing. I mean, I wasn't always a fan of Joe Biden back in the day. I had my criticisms of him, but at this point, I know he's a good and decent person and he's competent, competent, and he can get things back on track and then we can argue policy later. How about that? That's my, that's my thought of it. I know other people want to fight the revolution now, but that you're going to fight the revolution right out, right into Donald Trump's second term. I'm telling you, I know a lot of folks don't want to hear that, but it's just the political reality. You've got to fight smarter, not harder. 
or harder and smarter, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. But I think that, you know, the debates, like I said, we've got to change the format now. Uh, I know the next debate, there's going to be at least 10 people on the stage again. And I just think it's doing a disservice at this point. It really is. It's turned into kind of reality show antics and people trying to get one-liners and viral moments like Julian Castro being that as obnoxious as he was and out of line, trying to question Biden's memory. And he wasn't even accurate on the, uh, on the attack, by the way. And that kind of stuff, not helpful. And you actually had a Democratic congressman switch his endorsement from Julian Castro to Biden because he was so pissed off at what Castro did. It's not going to work. That kind of crap is not going to work. And it's just not helpful. Cannibalizing each other. You'll hear me use that term a lot because that's what they're doing. Going after Biden about a story he told in Delaware when he was a a lifeguard at a pool. Um, And there's, you know, it was true. And people are going after him about that ridiculous I encourage you guys to read the story in the Washington Post there's a story that clarifies his his corn pop story and the gangs in Delaware and his interaction with the black community starting back then in the 60s and it was always from a position of I want to help how do we how do we correct the injustices I mean Biden's always been an advocate despite some policy mistakes you know, despite hindsight is 2020, of course, talk about the crime bill and things. But people forget that when the crime bill was being passed in 1994, black leaders in black communities that were ravaged with crime from the crack epidemic and things were begging for tougher crime laws. Two thirds of the Congressional Black Caucus supported that crime bill. So Joe Biden was not out of step with that. Now, some of the byproducts of that bill over, you know, over the long term with mass incarceration and things. Yeah, that was an unfortunate consequence. But you can make you can correct those mistakes now, but don't blame him for supporting that back then. People both both sides of the aisle were clamoring for a tougher crime bill at the time in 19 in the 1990s. So, you know, come on. And that leads me to my conversation with Ryan Lizza. And um, Ryan's a, he, he's a good guy and he's, he's a lot of fun. And he's been around and he's, um, like I said earlier in my, in my uh, earlier discussion about him, he's now the chief Washington correspondent for Politico. And he's a senior political analyst for CNN. So we get to chat all the time. He's done some great work. And he was also the Scaramucci killer. <laughs> And we're going to talk about that and the Democratic debates and the and the media coverage. Do you think it's fair? Do you think what they're how they're covering Biden is is right? Um, our discussion is is pretty robust on that. So next up, Ryan Lizza. Well, I am thrilled to start the season off with uh, Ryan Lizza who is an excellent political reporter. He has a lot of experience on these issues and and the politics in Washington, and he is now a chief correspondent for Politico. He's also a senior political analyst for CNN and my colleague over there. So, Ryan Lizza, welcome to Honestly Speaking Season 2. You are my first guest of the new season. Oh, I am I am honored. It's great to great to be with you. I feel this is a way for us to like have some of our our uh, 
green room conversations, <laughs> but to uh, out to the whole world. So that's true. This could that's get, true. This could get real. I know. Well, you know, that's something people always say about me is that I keep it real and I'm 100 percent authentic. <laughs> and, you know, I curse on my podcast. I'm a Jersey girl. I can't help it. Sometimes my mom says you curse too much. I'm like, well, it's real life, though. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a free flow. I'm from Long Island. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's just like Jersey East. Right, right. That's right. I mean, Long Island, New York, <laughs> like, you know, the tri-state area, we're, we're a different breed. We're a different breed. Um, so, Ryan, you um, get – oh, congrats on the job at Politico, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, I'm very excited fun place to, to be. Yeah, I'm excited to, to continue to read your stuff there. Uh, I think it's going to be a hell of a campaign season. Uh, so, yeah, place for that. Um, and you recently wrote an article uh, about Vice President Biden that I think initially wasn't the article you thought you were going to write, and it turned into something else. And it focused on the the Biden campaign's frustration with the media's narrative about him as a candidate. And I thought that that was yeah. really timely and spot on. I mean, I was in Europe for a couple of weeks and I came back and I saw, I mean, I was monitoring things. I shouldn't have been, I was on vacation, but I can't help myself. And I was just really <laughs> frustrated with the way that people were obsessing over kind of what I felt were nitpicky gaffes about Biden. And I'm like, come on, yeah. man, you guys got to focus on the prize here. Uh, the, the bigger prize, which is beating Trump. Trump. But talk a little bit about what you wrote about in that article and, and what the source of the frustration for the Biden camp has been. Yeah. And not to typecast you, but I do feel like a lot of the never Trump people, <laughs> you know, I don't know how you describe yourself these days, but Republicans or former Republicans who don't want Trump to win and want to find someone to support. I feel like there's a lot of sympathy for Biden and a lot of eye rolling about the Democratic primary process and how left some of the other candidates are going. But anyway, You're we can right. talk about that That's, in a second. That is not an unfair <laughs> characterization. I'm still a conservative. <laughs> I am barely still a technical Republican, I guess, I, even though the party is abandoned me since Trump. But um, I am not a Democrat. And I do, in fact, support Biden at this point, because I think he has the best chance of winning. Never thought I would say that if you had asked me that five or six, seven yeah. years ago. <laughs> but carry on. Well, yeah, I, I, look, and I think that uh, I, I thought in 2016, that the Hillary Clinton campaign missed an opportunity to try and build a bigger coalition in that campaign to bring in uh, the sort of never Trump faction and the, you know, just the partisan nature and polarization of politics didn't allow her uh, to do that. Anyway, the so I, 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 the, I guess the question I was uh, thinking about in, in a lot of the conversations I had was, What's the source of Biden's resilience? That's that's sort of what I was searching for. The guy started the race basically at 30% down from that third. And, you know, it was published. He was still at 30% if you average the poll. And he's been through the ringer on a number of issues. You know, he went through the phase invading people oh right remember that pretty devastating stuff for a politician right that's true on him in, in the polls while harris attacked he went 
And so he went through this phase where he was basically being accused of, um, if not being accused of being a racist, was there was a lot of um, investigative reporting and candidate oppo dumps about his history on on race. Um, you know, other candidates in previous cycles who are not as well known as Biden, they would not have survived that. Um, his comment about working with segregationist senators, uh, some of the stuff he said during the busing controversies in the in the 70s, he came out of it still 30 percent, right? And so, um, and now I think I, now I think we're in like phase three, where which was always sort of out there, but is, you know, uh, Joe Biden, he, you know. Is the doddering Joe, right? He's too old, and you know that we'll see if he can withstand that. So, in you know, in talking to people in Biden world about what they thought the resilience was, one, the first thing that comes up is their um, rage at the press, right? <laughs> so they feel like, and you know, I know most most campaigns always think the press is unfair, right. but they just think the press has. Yeah. And they think the press has been, you know, unfair to him, that he's been hit so much harder than Elizabeth Warren or in some of these other candidates. And, you know, they have an explanation for it, or at least a partial explanation, is they believe that there's this collision between this candidate in his 70s um, who doesn't, you know, who in his eight years as vice president wasn't really paying attention, especially in the last few years of the Obama uh, era to the rising left faction of the Democratic Party doesn't understand what, let's just throw under the umbrella term of, you know, wokeness, right? Doesn't understand that um, phenomenon on the, on the left. And all of a sudden was being covered by what, the, and this is their expression, you know, woke young millennials who thought that the Democratic Party is all about AOC and that Joe Biden is this dinosaur. Now that isn't, you know, that is a fair criticism from 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 younger Democrats, but their view is that the press corps adopted this view of the Democratic Party as being much more left-wing. Um, you know, they 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 view this is the Biden world's view that the press views issues through, you know, coastal issues, very very attuned to issues of race and gender. Um, and that there's a certain cultural affinity for the, some of the non-Biden candidates in the race, whereas Biden's voters are obviously older, more working class, um, and something that I never, you know, very often is not mentioned, uh, racially diverse, right? Because he has the biggest claim right now on the African American vote. So that, so that, that's sort of their explanation for some of the troubles he's having. Now, is all that I true? Think it's fair. No, obviously he's. <laughs> I think it's fair. <laughs> yeah. I really. I mean, obviously. Yeah, I, come I, from, I, thought, I come from yeah. a, a conservative worldview anyway, so I've always been suspicious of the mainstream yeah. media being a little tilted to the left, and I still think that's the case. But uh, I, this whole idea of the uh, the the woke the woke uh, left versus the moderate um, Democratic Party, this tension, I think, is real. And I just think that the media has, yeah. has looked at it as it's a bit more sexy to talk about this kind of new generational yes. push. So it's more of an interesting story to them. And you just look at the age of who these reporters yes. are. It's um, they relate to it. So it does th- it does, I think, create a narrative that's become a challenge because 
Biden represents the establishment tradition. And he, I think some of the weakness of his campaign is that they're trying to run a traditional campaign without making some adjustments to the new environment that we're in. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that your first comment about coming from the right and viewing this and, and nodding your head, because that is some, that some of the feedback I got um, for, was from conservatives like, you know, oh, it's really funny to hear Democrats talk about True. how, you know, the, li- the liberal press doesn't understand their candidates. Right. But, so it, you know, it is, a little, it is a little bit similar to how Republicans sometimes complain about their coverage because, you know, they're being covered by you know, more culturally liberal reporters. And so I thought that was kind of funny. And then I actually heard from a couple of, of younger reporters who cover Biden who are a little bent out of shape by the, by the criticism. And, you know, I, I thought that was interesting, too. But it's not the kind of, you know, I was thinking, like, oh, could I have included some of their perspectives in the piece? But, yeah. you know, I'm going to do reporters mentioned. So it's not like I was just going to, like, call a random young reporter and be like, hey, are you a woke millennial who hates <laughs> Joe Biden? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, and then there was a, the other little bit of criticism I noticed was like, you know, <laughs> uh, people accusing me of, you know, being a sort of, you know, uh, slightly older uh, reporter, you know, shaking his finger at some of the younger reporters, which I, oh you know, I, I, I was, I was, I was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely I am sympath- I am a little bit sympathetic to the Biden view, but I was mostly channeling them rather you know than, than endorsing them. Well, of course, that was I mean it's not your job to endorse them. You you were you know <laughs> trying to get the information and write the story, and and that was the perspective. I think that's hysterical. But then if you're the older guy that's like pointing the finger because we're not, I think we're about the same age. That makes me old, and I refuse. I'm 45. To yeah, I just turned 44 on September 9th. So yeah, no, that's bullshit. Oh, okay, yeah. we're Bring not chicken. that old. <laughs> <laughs> These damn millennials, I swear. Oh, I love millennials. They they keep me young, I guess. Oh Lord. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so yeah, so I but I think that is, you know, and this this um I had also been thinking about doing and I still think this is a piece that somebody should do. Maybe I'll do it later. You know, every cycle there's a version of Boys on the Bus. I don't know if you remember that book from the 70s, yep. but it was a book just about the press corps and who was covering the presidential candidates. And it was this very, you know, up close portrait of who um, who they were and, you know, how important they are in shaping Americans' views of these candidates. And, you know, every maybe like every 10 years, there's another good version of that. And it tells you something about the culture of the of the press corps and how it affects things. And I think it would be interesting to, you know, to sort of, you know, someone outside of the campaign culture, just go hang out with us and, and see, you know, what, what the difference is. Because, I mean, one big change is the press corps went from being very working class back in, in the old days mm-hmm. to being very, you know, elite Ivy League. That, you know, and that was a big change. And, you know, uh, you don't have a lot of reporters from working class backgrounds uh, anymore. And that was something that came up in those in those conversations with the Biden folks. Now, there were, it used to be lack any diversity whatsoever. It's much more uh, it's much more diverse now. Mm-hmm. But that's but it's become you know more diverse, but definite, but more also more elite and less working class uh, over time. And that you know that's I think that's worth thinking about how newsrooms spend a lot of time on the diversity issue, right? That's really really important in most newsrooms today. They don't spend as much time on the on the class issue. 
And I think that's interesting. And that, that's, that is you know, interesting. Un- it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. The class issue is also, uh, I think, contribute a lot, contributed to a lot of Trump's rise that people missed. It was because yeah. there wasn't you only had a handful of reporters. Uh, Selena Zito comes to mind for me, uh, you know, of people who were that could relate, that grew up in those environments, that could relate to the groundswell of support that was happening, you know, that kind of silent majority thing that was going on. Um, there are only yeah. a handful, handful of people who were start, who's, who got that. And most of the mainstream media missed it. And I think class had a lot to do with yep. it. Yep. Yep. And it's a challenge for newsrooms because that's, you know, that that's not the pool of talent that we're, you know, where we're all re- recruiting from. Right. Um, so... Well, it's, so you, anyway, I thought, so in, you know, so all the, of that is... Go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you that in the course of, of your reporting, obviously you've established relationships with uh, campaign advisors and people who are um, behind the scenes on these campaigns. And after Thursday's debate, given what you wrote on Wednesday, because that story came out on 9-11 on Wednesday, the day before the the, the third debate... Have you talked to any of the Biden camp since then? How do they feel that the post-debate coverage has uh, has been for them? I'm trying to think if I had any really meaningful conversations, and not really. I haven't. Not about the uh, because, I, and I and I would like I would like to because I think um, you could argue <laughs> that the debate. The post-debate coverage is a kind of interesting test mm-hmm. of the thing that they're complaining about. Exactly. Because one stream of coverage, if you're on social media, you probably haven't missed, is Joe Biden ex- exposed himself as a terrible racist in the third debate, and he should immediately drop out of the race. Which is insane. I just want and, to the record and say that. Donald, I mean, let, let's give yeah, well, me Chris, Donald Trump that? is a racist. I'll say that, that you're a reporter. You don't have to. I will say that. Donald Trump is the yeah. terrible racist, not Joe Biden, for God's sakes. But go ahead. <laughs> and you've seen what I'm talking about, though, right? Yes, I saw it. Rolling Stone had a whole article yeah. about this. I know. Jamil, who I think is a, a really good writer and, and uh, you know, I, I, I follow him closely. I admire his work. And, yeah, he called he uh, he. You know he's got a big platform and is, a, is an important person covering this, uh, covering politics. And he called for him to drop out. Yeah, um, and this is you know so so I'm going to leave aside the merits of, of their case for a second and just try and like describe this more more clinically. But it, it this is um, the this is the phenomenon that I think the, the Biden people are talking about is a, is is this gap between. Some people who viewed his comments in that uh, answer, the, the famous record player answer, I mean, it was embedded in the record player answer, who viewed it as this guy's no difference than, is really not substance, substantially different than Trump on race. And a lot of other, you know, voices that don't have big platforms um, who just roll their eyes and think, are you kidding me? Um, so, you know, and it's, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how much traction that that gets. Do prominent African-American elected officials come forward and lend any support to that? So far, I have not seen that as yeah. uh, being the case. Right. And I don't think you and will. I don't so, think you will. And give me your take. What, this is the reason why. I was recently on CNN yeah. with um, Professor Cornell West, who 
is, uh-huh. has seen as a leader in the in the black community and you know leading intellectual, but he comes from a very very yeah. left wing point of view, and I would say a very woke yeah. point of view, right? And uh, he's yeah, revered, definitely. and he supports he was woke before it was cool, right? That's right. <laughs> and he was also uh, to point out he was a critic of Barack Obama as not being sufficiently woke during yes. the Obama administration. Probably the most high. Probably the most high profile, um, you know, African-American critic from the left of of Obama. Absolutely. So um, so it's people like him and that vein of the of the progressive left that may come out and try to claim that. I just think that at this point, that is an intellectual argument that should be had in the faculty rooms of ivory tower universities, because in the political reality, in the real world, that is not going to help you get someone uh, nominated and elected that could beat Donald Trump. It's just not. Those are so what's narrow. your what's your understanding? What's your understanding of the of the best or the case for uh, for um, for his his for Biden's comments being beyond the pale? How would you explain it to, well, to listeners? I would say that, you know, for people who didn't see it or are unfamiliar with this portion of the debate we're talking about, Biden was asked a question about systemic racism and things like that. And he went on to uh, talk about education and very inarticulately, fairly, I can say that was it was not a great answer, but I understood yeah. where he was coming from. He was talking about the yeah. differences in the education gap and in raising young um, young black kids in environments that are not exactly conducive for uh, the best education and that there's you know with broken families and urban environments where kids are not exposed to the same amount of words and they're not being read to and that is not untrue there have been scientific uh, mm. you know studies done about this about the differences between um, you know kids and again this could be a it's more of a class issue really than a race one um, uh, but I think that that yeah. are related. But it's talked about how these these kinds of um, th- these things set you back already. You're on you're on lower footing than than others, and we need to try to help get kids better education, better schools, better early childhood development. And he comes from you know his wife is a teacher, and he so education is important to him. So he was trying to make the point that how do we help improve the lives of young black kids or, or in urban centers uh, to get them a leg up in education, which would contribute to a, a better life? Because well, Frederick Douglass said education is the key to freedom. Now he didn't say it that and way. It, yeah. He made a comment. He, he yeah. He, it, it what I guess some people would feel were stereotypical. Um, Right. depictions of what happens but it really is not he didn't say all black kids he didn't say this is it we were talking he was talking about you know disadvantaged black kids and that's true and some of the woke folks don't want to admit that this is a reality we can talk about how it got there but it is a reality and and what he said was not untrue just like just like president george w bush talked about one of the he was asked during his debates about a civil rights issue what's the biggest biggest civil rights issue and he talked about the gaps in education and he said it's the soft bigotry of low expectations it talked about that as a civil rights right. issue, and i agreed with him right and right. so you know i think that the progressive left is going a little too hard on biden with that um because you have to look at the heart and where he's coming from do they think he's not going to be an advocate for the issues that they need, that they want to help improve the black community, of course he's going to be. So why are you damaging him and creating this level of, of uh, doubt about his 
commitment to those issues when that wasn't an issue when he was vice president. It was never an issue in the past when he was supporting civil rights legislation and supporting it, public education, supporting affirmative action. I mean, come on. You're just going to damage him and depress yeah. the vote if he's ultimately the, the front runner. That's why I that's where I come from. I'm looking at it purely from a political perspective because the prior priority yep. is getting Trump out. So I think they're hurting themselves. Well, the run with that. Save the revolution for later. Isn't that what Friedman it, said? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I'll be looking for two things on this. One, do any of his Democratic rivals publicly jump on this? And I haven't seen that yet. And then two. It's risky. Yeah. And then two, any high profile, um, especially African-American elected officials say that they agree with uh, some of the, 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 the Twitter critics. I haven't seen that either. But um, it does go to show you how you, build, you can build a powerful fl- platform on social media these days and have a, you know, a voice in the primary process because that, you know, that's what happened with a couple of people who were, uh, you know, just going on Twitter tears mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. And the so it is a, so it's a great question because even though I, I didn't talk to any Biden people after that to sort of, you know, test how frustrated or not they were, were with this, this is exactly the phenomenon they think that they're up against, you know, yeah. candidates who are running for president of Twitter versus candidates who, who were running to win the presidential primary. Which is actually a good transition into the um, Jonathan Chait piece that was in uh, New York. See how I did that? I, that was great. See, that's because you're a veteran, Ryan. <laughs> you are a veteran at this. You're experienced on television. You understand the concept of segues. This is wonderful. Um, Makes my job easier. Jonathan Chait, well, you and I talked about this uh, offline, but Jonathan Chait wrote an article in in New York Magazine um, where he said, let's face it, the the Democratic primary so far has been a debacle. And he talks about that actual dynamic, this whole Twitter, political Twitter um, appeal versus the real world. And um, I think he brings up some great points about that, because even though we live in the world of social media, most Americans are not on Twitter and they don't run their lives based on hashtags. Um, And this is where I think that the Democratic Party is miscalculating the appeal to this left wing progressive Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren wing, because that's not really where the Democratic Party is. And polling shows that. This is a really important point that is finally now becoming a, a little bit more of a thing <laughs> yeah. in um, in in the co- in the coverage, and with even some of the candidates more prominently bringing it up. I think there was a little bit of a fear early on. So if I had to, you know, describe the stages of the election, I do think, and and Chate really lays this out nicely in that piece. The early primary was um, what dominated it was candidates really um, jockeying and you know I used to hate this phrase but I've kind of I've kind of think there's something to it and you know virtue signaling oh God I on that social phrase, media but, <laughs> <laughs> but there is something to it I yeah, mean there, there is, is a certain you know Twitter you know the Twitter personality that just likes to show that they're you know down with a certain woke contingent on it's there it's and the, it's the proverbial you know, black you know black power fist <laughs> Yeah, and it's like you know Kamala and Warren, uh, or I should say I should use their last names Harris and Warren, and um, 
Bernie, I think, is separate because Bernie is, you know, Bernie's wokeness is a little different. He's more of an old school socialist where everything yes. is about class. And I think he's had a lot of adjustment in understanding, you know, uh, race and gender as important yes. issues in the yeah. Democratic Party. But, you know, there, there was a lot of just jockeying for that. And a lot of their communications people just spend all day on social media trying to earn those, you know, earn those points. Yep. Um, I, and I think a few of them have decided, uh-oh, all right, Warren's got Warren, – Warren now owns that space. I have mm-hmm. to readjust. And I think that's what's happened with Harris. And I think Harris decided – and yes, and Booker, good point. They both decided on a few issues. They're very – progressive you know they've won the primary on say um on some of the social justice issues maybe on prison reform they, mm-hmm. they both put out pretty bold plans on climate change you know where most basically all the democrats are kind of aligned on those issues but then on health care harris who had a lot of trouble figuring out what, where she, where she was on that still decided uh-oh i, I <laughs> I think, she's, you know, she's got a plan. She just hasn't been able to, like, describe the evolution. I think she decided to be in the lane that is basically – you're basically in, like, the Sanders-Warren lane or you're in the Biden-is-going-to-collapse lane, right? <laughs> the two lanes right now. And Kamala is now in the – all right, I got to be in the Biden-is-going-to-collapse lane. So when he does, I'll pick up the pieces. And Booker's there. I, I think Buttigieg uh, – He's that's where the, that's where he's decided to be. And the big issue that puts you there is health care, of course. Is it are you for Medicare for for all or you or are you for Medicare for all who want it? Right. And just purely from the polling perspective, the latter is not only more popular in a general election. It is this never is reported more popular in the Democratic primary. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the obvious safe place to be. And um, I thought the third debate, you know, early in the debate, I tweeted something like, you know, you you might call this debate moderates strike back because you had Biden and Buttigieg and a couple of and Klobuchar saying, hey, Bernie, hey, Elizabeth, your plans are too expensive. Warren, you don't know how you, you don't, you're not telling us how you're going to pay for it. This is, you know, and and that message had previously been been, been coming from uh, Delaney in the first debate. And he just has, Ooh. you know, very low. <laughs> exactly. And nobody wants to listen to him. You know, this like right. boring, bald, moderate guy, not to be mean, not to be mean to him. Yeah, but when it comes guy. from. Yeah, but when it comes from people with high approval ratings and who everyone in the you know in the lefty and democratic primary world has a certain amount of respect for, it has a little bit more uh, uh, weight. And so that's I think um, which is a good thing. You know, just get back to the, a good thing for for Biden. Yeah, go ahead. because it shows that listen, I'm not just this old guy from back in the day, not you know not yeah. uh, down with the cause. I'm telling you that this is impractical. Uh, you know, we don't know how we're going to yeah. pay for it. And millions and millions of people who have private health insurance through their employers will lose it. Is that really what you people want? No. You guys want us. You like Obamacare. We need to fix it. And that's what I'm talking about. This radical stuff about going to a single payer system is nuts. We're not going to do that now. And now he has cover because you've got Buttigieg and Klobuchar and yeah. who are who are, uh, you know, in that aren't on the fringes saying the same thing, which I think I think moderates around the world around the country were like, finally, someone is representing what we're saying yeah yeah 
I agree. And I, the other issues that are in, in this this basket of, wait a second, the Democratic Party has not really had a big debate on this, and all of a sudden they've adopted this, these positions. I thought in the first two debates were, one, the decriminalization of the border, yes. um, oh, and God. then two, a pretty, a pretty kind of like on, you know, a pretty knee-jerk uh, answer to uh, undocumented immigrants having full access to healthcare, to the to, to healthcare mm-hmm. and benefits, and you know, that's always been a very uh, complicated, controversial place for Democrats to be, and you know, those are the the, the the party in, in the first two debates just seemed to be completely um, without a lot of uh, thought saying on those three issues, yes, we'll get rid of private insurance. Yes, we'll give uh, benefits to undocumented immigrants and we'll decriminalize the border. That's not a great place to be uh, politically. Not for a general <laughs> election, maybe you know, in California and New York, <laughs> but not for the rest yeah, of the country. So, and that's like what Jonathan Chait's piece talks about. He points it out kind of like, that's wonderful that you have this progressive left thing happening here and good for you guys, but that's not where the rest of the Democratic yeah. Party really is. And he cites two polls. He cites the Gallup poll that says 50, yep. I think it was 54% to 41% of Democrats said they want the party to move more toward the center, not to the left. And the CNN poll said that they yeah, worry. Which, which, that which too, blows people's mind when you tell them that. Yes. And it blows people's mind because – Again, we have Twitter has, you know, has warped our brains into thinking that all of the Democratic Party is defined by its most progressive elements. And it is true that there's a lot of energy and excitement on the left right now, but only 8% of Democrats are Twitter activists. Right. 8%, 8%, 92% aren't on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, and so I think that is something that the and look I do this too. Like social media is such an easy way to um, download people's political opinions on the left and the right that it's very easy to think that what you are seeing is a stand-in for voters and for the parties uh, writ large. And you, ha- you know you gotta you gotta get out of the out of DC off social media yes. and just go hang out with people. And it's, you know. You, you you encounter lots of activists at political events because it tends to attract a, a large number of that yeah. uh, similar eight percent. But um, you know that's the, the party is big and more diverse, and a lot of working class uh, people who don't you know whose jobs you know think how many people we know who have jobs where it's normal to look at Twitter all day long. <laughs> I mean, that is not a normal thing for no. most Americans to do, like no. to sit online and look at Twitter. That, like that's, you know, if you think of how many professions where that's just like nuts to be, you know, yeah. you know, doing that. So yeah. tell that to the auto you gotta, you, out there in, in uh, Ohio or Michigan. I, you know, think about that where they're working their asses yeah. off all day, yep. sweating in a factory. And you've got a bunch of people who are sitting on their asses, tweeting, talk, telling them how they feel and what the where, you know, what issues are important to them it's it's um it's absolutely and i think it takes a lot of discipline for the campaigns to recognize that you know that that, you know yes you kind of maybe it is good to you know you want these high profile for lack of a better word influencers to support you but you can't um you got to remember that it's not um it's not necessarily the place to win over the 
you know, to win over uh, voters. And the media, so, I think media uh, outlets so, need to recognize that, too. I think that's all. There's also a certain amount of collusion there where a lot of, of uh, especially for television, some of the topics and the way that they, they frame them comes from social media a bit too much, in my opinion. And the combination of those things ele- elevates this idea of the Twitter uh, hashtag world uh, being more influential than it really is. I think there needs to be some 100%. self-reflection in the media space about that, too. Uh, and and not, to pick, I'll, not to pick on another network, but I'll give you an example. I saw <laughs> really um, kind of, uh, you know, meta, but I, I saw this headline online today from a, a, another network, not ours, not CNN, that said, and it was a clip of an interview, and it said, I, I wish I had it in front of me, but it said something like, um, in the wake of third debate, um, more voices call for Joe Biden to drop out. Oh, my God. And I thought, oh, my God. I thought, oh my God, what did I miss? <laughs> Who's calling for this? Nancy Pelosi? Like, what? and I mean, first of all, there were, so it was an interview with someone who was crit- critical of uh, of his views uh, in the debate, and I thought very uh, made a very power you know powerful case, but um, there were no voices calling Jeez. for it to drop out, except for the one you know the one writer yeah. we discussed at Rolling Stone, and that right. you know. So that to me, that's nuts. Yeah. If you're going to have a headline, yep. And you, you've got a couple of like, you know, people, you know, like you know, frankly, people like me on, on Twitter who, you know, like that's we don't matter. <laughs> like we're, know. you know, that's not that's not enough to justify people calling for Joe Biden to to, to drop out. And let me tell um, you what, so that I right just, there, that right there is going to be the death of the Democratic Party if they don't cut this shit out. That right there, because those kinds of things catch on and it's not I, I just yeah. I, I get it. I, I, I feel for the Biden campaign comms department about you know, comms team on how to combat this. They it's a it's a challenge. It, it yeah. really is. Um, uh, we have a few minutes no. left because I know yeah. you're, you're heading out on the yeah. campaign trail and I want to make sure we get a couple more things in before you got to run. Um, you did a quick, uh, okay. you did a quick spin room video uh, for Politico that you posted on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about the behind Naturally. the scenes, yes, of course, about the behind the scenes action at the debates, and I think a lot of people who watch these things are fascinated by what hap- what we don't see, and you gave a little insight into that. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what the spin room experience was like, and what it is, where it came from, and uh, yeah. what what you saw. Yeah. Now, first of all, this is a little behind the scenes. I want to I should I meant to tweet this because, um, you know, I don't really do a lot. You and I go are on TV a lot together commenting. But, you know, neither of us does ever does any like, you know, stuff as a correspondent uh, right. behind the camera. And and this kind of was what that, that was. So I just want to like all your listeners should know that. Um, apparently, when you do one of these things, you, all the work is done by a producer. <laughs> so uh, I have to give a shout out to, to Mary Newman, who did all the work, who wrote the script, uh, edited the whole thing, and and shot the whole thing. And it made me realize uh, I have uh, lost all respect for TV correspondents, and now I uh, realize that they don't do anything. Their producers do all the work. <laughs> I, I'm not going to get in the middle of the incoming on for you on that one, but no. No, it's true. Shout oh, out to the I'm kidding. No, it's I'm, true, I'm though. The producers she, she, are unsung she, she, heroes. A lot of people don't realize that how yeah, important they are, and they keep it all together. And a lot of folks wouldn't be where they are without their produ- with the help from their producers. You don't do it all on your own. Most don't. Anyway, yeah. so. 
Exactly, because she conceived of the idea, did all the research, yeah. shot it, and like gave me you know a lot of the stuff to say. So anyway, <laughs> having said all that, um, you know, one of the things that she in her research we we learned is like the spin room. The idea of the spin room goes back to like so many things in. Uh, the world of TV and politics, uh, uh, Reagan and the second uh, Reagan's reelection in 84, where they started gathering reporters after the debate because they recognized that debates were not really won on stage, but they were won in the press coverage in the mm-hmm. days and weeks uh, after the debate. So they realized this was really important to shape the coverage. Seems obvious now, but I guess, you know, it was a sort of innovation back then. Um, and I, I think it's changed a little bit over the years where it used to be – you used to have a lot of surrogates in the spin room. Mm-hmm. And um, as, you, as listen, listeners who watch it on TV probably know, uh, there are signs for all the candidates. And in the old days, the surrogates used to have their own signs, You know, just random politicians or consultants who were spinning uh, for their guy or girl. And – um, it was unusual for the candidates themselves to come out unless they'd had a really tough night and they wanted to clean something up. And now all of the candidates, uh, at least in this primary, all of the candidates with the uh, notable exception of Joe Biden uh, have come out in uh, most of the – in the three debates, the, 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 the non-Biden candidates have uh, almost to a person have, have come out and talked to the press afterwards. I think partly because it's such a crowded field that even though you've just had two or three hours on stage, you want to take another bite on CNN and MSNBC and sure. some of the other networks. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and sort of uh, emphasize whatever message it was. And so that's kind of interesting. So that makes it a lot more fun to be in the spin room afterwards because you can grab these candidates. And you, you, as you see on TV, there are huge scrums around them. And you can, you know, you can, you can do a bunch of uh, interviews. And then all of their top uh, campaign and aides are, are generally there as well. And so it's a pretty target-rich environment for a reporter to just bounce between uh, campaigns and advisors and, and, and candidates. Um, and but that's a big change. Too, now. The, the fact- I think they, you know, sometimes news is made yeah, yeah. because candidates will double or triple down on something they said during a debate like Castro did. Um, like Castro? Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Booker also kind of piggybacking off of Castro's yes. oh, right. of, of Biden. I mean, it was... I, I, I feel like Booker made more news in the yeah yeah booker made more news in the interview afterwards than in the debate that's right that's right so i, I think when you say it's a target rich environment you're you're not kidding it's uh it really is because these it's such a fast moving media environment now where everything is very very fluid the debate could be is old news already <laughs> it's what yeah. happened in the spin room after um what were some of the absolutely there were a couple of quirky things you saw in the newsroom where um a couple of funny moments what was what was one of them for you that's oh yeah i would say i would say the, i think the funniest moment in there because you know you have this whole collision of everyone in the world of media and everyone in the world of uh, politics colliding in this very small space yeah, so you get you know honest. you <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, you have a lot of funny interactions between the different candidates and campaigns. And so I think two that stood out to me was one, uh, Andrew Yang at the end of the night, being very Andrew Yang and just kind of like walking around, you know, <laughs> to, doing his thing. And I grabbed him to do an interview and he like, you know, he, I think he, sound, he sang at one point, hugged me, <laughs> called himself the Lord of the Internet. <laughs> He's just kind of like... <laughs> He's a little wild. But then I think my favorite moment was um, Elizabeth Warren is doing a bit – she's doing a – 
you know, she's in this knot of reporters, everyone's shouting questions, she does her thing, and then she's got another live shot she's got to get to, and she cuts through this, the MSNBC set where Chris oh Matthews and Andrew God. Yang are, uh, are chatting. It was not live. It oh, was not live, God. but it was just it was hilarious because Andrew Yang is like he, she's waving at Yang and Yang's waving at him, and Chris Matthews is just kind of you know laughing. So, you know, if you if you are a, a political junkie and you know all these characters, it's pretty it's it's funny to watch them all sort of bounce around together in this tight space. It's reminiscent of uh, political junkies like myself who watch C-SPAN during the State of the Union because I like to watch the unedited feed and the interactions of the members of yeah. on the House floor uh, all coming together and who's yeah. where and who's jockeying for position. And it's hysterical to me, but that's yeah. I mean, that's so in the weeds, like pathetic of <laughs> for people because I, I, we like thrive off of it. When I used to work on Capitol Hill, my coworkers and I would sit around when preparing for the drinking game and when watch the C-SPAN feed if I weren't down there um, in the in the press gallery with, with the rest of the press secretary. Sometimes my boss wouldn't make me do that because he was so over it after being to like 20-something of these things. But we would watch that and just laugh about the different <laughs> personalities and stuff. And you know, very inside baseball. Um, speaking of inside baseball, I have got to end on this note. I would, it would be remiss of me <laughs> not to bring up the mooch. For those who don't know, yeah. Ryan Lizza is probably single-handedly responsible for <laughs> Scaramucci's um, quick demise in the White House because it was Ryan in his interview with Scaramucci that um, took the world by storm and um, got Scaramucci fired. This was back in the summer of 2017. <laughs> Um, it is the, it was the beginning. It was the birth of the term, the, the, the Scaramucci, as far as a time metric uh, in the Trump campaign. <laughs> and um, Ryan, you got to You know, Mooch is back in, in, in the news now. He has had a change of heart. Apparently he took the road to Damascus and had a come to Jesus moment. And he no longer supports Donald Trump and is actually now actively supporting yeah. um, efforts to get him out. What do you just yeah. talk a little bit about? what happened that night, what you're, what you were thinking as, yeah. as Scaramucci was going on this, this, this obscenity laden rant about <laughs> weeks in the white house. And do you think that his yeah. transformation now is, is real? Yeah. All right. Well, this, I think the second part is the more interesting one, but I'll quickly tell yeah, just the tale of what happened remember, that night. Just a um, quick brief, you know, for, yes. to refresh people's memories. I had um, tweeted out a kind of boring little scooplet that he and Bill Shine, the uh, former uh, head of Fox News, um, were having dinner with the president, with President Trump, because I'd heard about this and reported it. And it's not something that rose to the level of writing a piece, but I, I tweeted it out. Scaramucci at that point was having a huge war with Reince Priebus, the chief of staff. Um, even if, you know, he'd only been a few days on the job, but he was paranoid that uh, because Reince had blocked him from joining the White House for months and months and months. And so they hated each other and were at each other's throats. And for some reason, he got it in his head that Reince had leaked this to me to somehow harm Scaramucci. Um, why he thought this was so harmful is a is a, I'm not really sure. Um, anyway, Maybe it was more about the really Gilfoyle part of it. She, she you know, I didn't want to mention. I didn't want to mention that. 
I mentioned it. I'm just saying, you know, there were rumors. So maybe it was more about that because of, of a person, his personal life was in tatters at the time. And, you know, maybe that's what set him off. But that's just my opinion. Go ahead. That's, that is a, that is that is a theory I've heard. But so he was um, very eager to get in touch with me to find out the origin of this tweet, um, and so he called the mutual. For some reason, um, he didn't he couldn't find my my phone number. I learned later there was a reason he couldn't find my phone number because because when he was uh, entered the White House, his contacts were all messed up. So his phone, he lost all his contacts on his phone. There's a whole other side story about that. Um, but anyway, so a reporter friend of mine said, hey, you know, Scaramucci is looking for you. Is it okay if I give you, give him your number? And I said, yeah, of course. So I knew he was going to call me. Um, and I'm sort of just waiting by the phone, like, you know, um, tapping my fingers on my desk, like, all right, when's Mooch calling? <laughs> this will be fun. He's the White House communications director. I'm going to get a good interview out of this. So he calls me and starts in asking about um, my sources and saying he's trying to do right by the country and make Donald Trump a successful president and please be a good American and tell me who leaked the fact that he and Bill Shine were having dinner with Trump. And then violate, got a little more confrontational. Please violate you know, every journalistic standard ever just to, because you're, you want to be an yeah. American. You know, like these people crack me up with their rationalizations. Uh, but go ahead. That surprised me a little bit that he didn't understand as the communications director of the White House, that he right. didn't understand that right. it was inappropriate to be asking that. And that by appealing to the fact that he was trying to make Donald Trump be a great success and look good, that – I should help him do that. So that to be suggested, this, maybe this isn't the perfect job for him because he right. doesn't understand basic stuff about like right. the, the press White House relationship. It's like that commercial. That's not how um, it works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> um, and so I said, you know, sorry, I just can't do that. Just as if you had told me something in confidence off the record or on, on background, I would never, you know, tell Reince Priebus, you know, that who your source was. And I've said this publicly, right? Right. right was not the source of that information. It came through a whole other weird channel. Um, uh, and actually this has been this has been said on the record and this, so I can actually say this, this is because it's no secret anymore. Uh, the confirming source of it was actually Hope Hicks and Hope actually told Scaramucci that afterwards because there was a bit of a leak hunt and she just wanted to be transparent. Oh, I did not know um, that. That's interesting. I missed that. Yeah. So it yeah. was Hope. That was... It, <laughs> As a, as a second or third person, yeah, and she said it. Um, I believe she said it publicly, but she she told uh, him publicly, so it's it's no secret at all. Um, anyway, he, he and that all that all, that was all later. So then anyway, I just started, you know, I tried to sort of turn it around, and turn it into an interview, and he went on this tirade about Reince Priebus and how, and to me, this was the most important part of that conversation. He. He went on about how he was calling or had already called the FBI to investigate 
Brian Supremus, the chief of staff to the president of the United States. This is insane. Think about that for a That's second. Nuts. This has gotten forgotten. That is like explosive, newsworthy information that the communications director at the White House is bringing in the FBI to investigate the chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Now, never mind. Afterwards, I, I think that this was probably not even true. <laughs> you know? right. But uh, the fact that he said this on the record was to me like, earth shattering. Now, he said a lot of other really funny things that have always gotten the attention, you know, about Bannon yes. and and some some of the salty things he said about, about Priebus. But to me, the, the most important thing was like, holy shit, this guy's calling the FBI? This is crazy. I've never covered a White House where something like this goes on. No one has. <laughs> you know, like, who, call, who calls the cops on the boss? <laughs> right. Like, right. like that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it and was nuts. And, so, and and the thing also too is that he accused he, you, just so people understand, that Scaramucci yeah. after he got caught when he wrote the story and he was like, "Holy shit, I guess I fucked up." Um, he accused you of of uh, journalistic unethical behavior because you recorded the conversation and 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 because there was no way of getting around what he said. You had it on tape, but you were legally allowed to do that, just so that people know. In D.C., it's only well, of course, of course, of course. So you would never make that kind of. Yeah. Well, yeah, and if you're not only that, but uh, let me there's a couple of other details that people, you know, since I'm telling the whole story, I don't know if I've ever told the whole thing this way, but to anyone, so a bit of a scoop here, Tara. Oh, well, but um, you know, so but and then after he got off the phone, he tweeted publicly uh, about rights and alluded to the fact that rights had done something unethical and/or illegal. So his tweet suddenly blew up that night. So not only did he tell me, but he then tweeted part of the substance of our conversation. That tweet went viral. CNN started went into like breaking news coverage of Scaramucci versus Reince. You know, they publicly talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. And I tweeted. And then I tweeted saying, I have some insight into this. I did without revealing that I talked to Scaramucci yet because I wanted to write about it. I tweeted, you know, something like, you know, I know what this is about. I can't remember the exact exchange. And it blew up into a big thing that night, right? So already this is all public now, right? Scaramucci, the Scaramucci writes war. He started it. He called the reporter, talked to me for 10 minutes on the record, and then tweeted about it. And then it's breaking news on CNN. Mm-hmm. So the idea that so, so the next day, I then wrote a full account of all of this, including my conversation with him, and explaining the backstory to all of this. In that, you know, were the, some of the crazy quotes where he talks about, uh, you know, Bannon, um, you know, uh, doing whatever, you know. Bannon, uh, I think the to, yeah, fallacy, uh, fallacy. I think the proper. I think the auto auto fallacy. I think is the technical term. Because <laughs> a term. <laughs> Yeah, I there's, yeah, there's I, I learned that. Well, I guess you had to write it. I guess you had to somebody <laughs> your editor was like there's actually a term for that. <laughs> but and this I don't think people know is so before I published the piece, I called Scaramucci again and I said, "Hey, I just want to be sure of two things. One, I want to make sure you know I'm um um, uh, one, I want to make sure that we uh, that I didn't make any mistake and that we were on the record last night. And he said, yes, you know, we, we were. Obviously, I never said it was off the record or on background. So he admitted so to you that I, he knew it was not off the record. Yes, I called him and asked him two things. I said, one, I just want to make sure that I didn't miss something. We were on the record and he confirmed that. And then two, I just said, hey, this is what's going to be in the piece. And I, you know, I said, look, you know, I think there'll be some stuff that'll, you know, this will be 
pretty newsworthy, and you know, I just want you to know that this is what the piece is. And I went through it with him. And you may want to, and you know, that conversation. <laughs> and you may want to get so a banker's not, box. It's not like <laughs> this is not going to end well for you, Mooch. Oh my gosh, go ahead. Yeah, so it's not like he could have. So it's not like he could have been surprised by 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 any of it, and. Um, you know, he said, look, um, in, in that conversation, he basically said, well, if you publish this, yes, I know it was all on the record, but if you publish this, I'm never going to talk to you again. And, you know, I said, ah, you, you know, you'll be fine. This won't be the end of the world. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you don't mean that. And, you know, and then that was it. And then, you know, I published it and, um, that, and then the I guess he was, um, <laughs> yeah. And then, so Has on your second question, you? of, Has he ever talked then, to you again? Unfortunately not. You know, I reached out to him at one point to say, hey, would you be interested in doing something for students at Georgetown for journalism students? We could have a, you know, um, a open public conversation about the source journalist relationship. How long you could after? talk about your experiences. I could talk about, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. There were a couple of times where, I, you know, he was mentioned maybe in a story. So I did need so I, I would text him for comments. Yeah. Um, but then. I also thought maybe there was like a larger lesson people could learn, especially students at a university, yeah, sure. and that that would be like a, a nice setting. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he didn't he uh, didn't didn't respond to that. Um, oh, that, that which and I thought that would have been great. It would have, but you know, he his whole world was turned upside down after that. He became a bit of a of a joke, and it um, not 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 by your fault. It's his fault. But I I, I kind of understand why he'd be a little pissed off. <laughs> At you, at yeah. You no, no, of course. Of um, course. Have you? I read a story though that there was a there was a almost an awkward encounter at a uh, UTA party during White House Correspondence Weekend in 2018, um, where you guys uh, crossed paths. Did, we were, were there any we words? Did anything happen? Uh, nothing. I mean, nothing of note. Nothing of note. He's he's pretty much committed. I think he's. Uh, <laughs> I think he's pretty committed to the uh, to the not talking, but who knows? You know, he changes his mind about a lot of things, and I'm sure, I'm sure he'll. he'll I'm sure you know uh, his current view of Trump is um, is much different now. Yes. So maybe uh, in hindsight, he'll see the fact that he didn't spend a long time working for someone he now thinks is a threat to democracy as uh, as a good thing rather than a bad thing. Do you think it's Do you think it's legit? You think he honestly? Did you think he was a true believer in the beginning, or was it just some kind of, um, you know, he's a very wealthy guy, he's in the finance business, he had, uh, you know, his company was was up for sale, and there was a lot going on at that time when he took that job. That I don't think that he took the job because he was a true believer necessarily, but you you knew him a little bit better than I did. What do you, what do you think? You know, Tara, I don't know. I yeah. just don't know what his, you know, because. Um, you know, his conversations with me were all about how Trump is misunderstood mm. and, you know, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to fix the country. And remember, his criticism was of me was that uh, I should reveal my sources to help Trump. That's right. how dedicated he was to Donald Trump, that he he was trying to convince a reporter to break a confidence with another uh, with other officials in the White House because the the Trump presidency was so important and it was so important to make Donald Trump succeed. So I do have a little bit of a tough time squaring my experiences with him and conversations with him back then with his view now that, um, you know, he, he, he had it all, he had it all wrong, but you know what, you know, people, you know, people change and some people who get into politics, 
um, you know, don't and don't really know what they believe ideologically, and their first experience in politics might be one thing, and you know, it might take them a long time to reflect on uh, and figure out and understand uh, what they believe. I've had friends, you know, a friend of mine who I've known a long time covered uh, named Kurt Bardella. Who oh, works for ISA and is yep. now <laughs> is now a liberal Democrat? Yeah, Kurt and I worked together <laughs> yeah, he, on Capitol Hill years ago when he worked for ISA and he worked for a couple of other California congressmen. You know, I worked for Dana Rohrabacher and we uh, we got to know each other quite well during the border battles back then in in um, uh, during our time then from 2007 to like 2012 or so. So I know Kurt. Yeah, he's completely gone the other way. Yeah. So people do change. I think the one thing that is striking about the Scaramucci thing is um, it does seem like the change happened when he was after he was personally attacked by Trump and that everything else up until that point didn't do it. But then a single insult um, caused him to flip overnight in a pretty uh, serious way. So, you know, I think that's probably notable when you're trying to figure out what's in the what's going on in his head. Well, isn't that usually what happens? People don't change until it personally affects them, and um, maybe that's what it was. He claims that it was the insult to the, you know, the sender back comments because of his Italian heritage, and and that it spoke to him on a personal level because his his uh, family came over here as Italian immigrants and suffered at the hands of the discrimination back back in those days, and that's what he claims the transition was, and maybe so. I just can't believe but that it took that something maybe- like that for him to finally realize that Trump is a bigot. I, I come on. I was on. I was thankfully on vacation the week of Scaramucci Week, 2019. Yeah. So I was very glad. I was very glad not to get sucked into it. Um, but if I tell me if I've got it wrong, but I think the the sequence of events was yes, Trump said that, and yes, he did. Then Scaramucci then did offer some criticism about that, but then Trump tweeted a oh, very yes. harsh criticism of Anthony. Oh, what? multiple uh, for for. And that, but that was the breaking point, right? It was uh, up until that point, I think Anthony was still trying to be a, I love Trump, but occasionally we'll criticize him for X or Y. But then when that minor criticism turned into a personal attack on Anthony, yes. everything changed. Yeah, it all, that, it, then all gloves were off at that point. And didn't he appeal? Uh, yeah. Isn't he appeal to your Italian heritage because you're Italian? And, uh, <laughs> in that whole to back and forth about yeah. like, you know, like so how that was supposed to be some kind of bond that you, that you broke because you're fellow Italians. And I was like, come on, man. Yeah. Um, I'm part, I, there, I have Italian blood too, to it. and I understand yeah. that. That's, you know, oh, you do? All right. Yeah, I do. I got married in Sicily. I talk about this a lot. I just came back from an epic vacation for celebrating our anniversary and my birthday. We were in Calabria, um, Southern Italy, which is a beautiful oh, nice. place. I hope everyone goes. Um, do you, what, what part of Italy is your family from and have you ever visited? And we'll close on that note. Light, lighten it up. So my, <laughs> my family's from, uh, my dad's side is from a town called Benevento, which is uh, not too far away from Naples in Southern Italy. Mm-hmm. And um, I have been to Italy a few times, but I've never been to the homeland. I've never been down to Benevento. Uh, I've never, I've never been south of Rome, actually. Oh, so um, one so of these much. days, uh, I'm planning on taking my kids and going to Benevento and uh, seeing some, some, some family that are, are, uh, are still there. Please do. It is Italy is my favorite place in the world. It, it will give you life, and I think you will have a renewed yeah. um, 
a renewed connection to your Italian heritage if you go and you see that there. It's kind of like how, how you know, black folks say when they get a chance to go visit their parts of Africa where their families are from, they just feel a certain yeah. sense of connection. You will definitely feel that way. When I went to Italy for the first time in 2009, I, it, it changed my life. And I ended up coming back and enrolling in Italian language classes and really embracing oh, wow. my okay. Italian heritage. Yeah. And eventually got married there in Sicily. Cool. And I've been back six times. And it's um, I never want to leave. We're going to we have to buy property there and, yeah. and have at the house there. But that's a whole other thing. Ryan, Lizza, <laughs> thank you for spending so much time with me. I know that you're heading out on the campaign trail and you have a flight to catch. Um, well, any uh, updates? I hear you're writing a book. Um, yes, Olivia Nutzi and I are writing a book about the 2020 campaign, but it's a uh, it's a uh, let's just say it's a long term project. <laughs> project. <laughs> so uh, you know. Well, good luck nothing, with that. Uh, good no, luck no, with that. I, people always ask me about it, and my joke is like, "Oh yeah, it's finished." Like, you know, I can't tell you how it ends though. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's a, that's an we endeavor. All, that we all I, die. Yes. Right. Right. We all eventually eventually die, or as Rick Wilson said, everything <laughs> Trump touches dies. So uh, let's just see if we can make it out of this campaign election alive and not alcoholics. Um, Ryan. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Uh, have fun out there on the campaign trail, and I'll see you in the CNN green room. <laughs> I'll see you there. Take care, Thanks, Tara. my friend. Ryan Lizza, Chief Washington Correspondent for Politico. Check him out on Twitter, at Ryan Lizza, and um, check him out on CNN, and definitely read his columns in Politico, because it's it, it will continue to be very informative and entertaining. Thanks, Ryan. Again, another big thank you to my colleague at CNN and Politico's chief uh, Washington correspondent, Ryan Lizza, for joining me as my first guest of the new season of Honestly Speaking. Um, Be sure to check out Ryan at Ryan Lizza on Twitter and look for his stories at Politico.com. So back by popular demand, uh, I used to do these feel good stories at the end of my podcasts. And then because things were getting really long and I kind of stopped doing them and I shouldn't have. So people have been asking me, we really need some good news. So I'm going to reinstate doing feel good stories at the end of the podcast because things are really heavy and we need some good news. But this one is is kind of a combination of good news and um, uh, tragedy. So the hurricane, Hurricane Dorian, the Category 5 catastrophic storm that hit the Bahamas while I was away, is really a heartbreaking story. I mean, it wiped out Abaco Island in the Bahamas and Grand Bahama Island. Tens of thousands of, of Bohemians are homeless. I mean, it, the, the pictures, when I got back and I saw the destruction, I was just heartbroken. And they are our neighbors. And there was all this confusion with allowing people to come to the United States who didn't have papers. I mean, they lost everything. People didn't have anything but the clothes on their backs. And so our government was going to make an exception and let people come. And then Trump stopped that because he ran around saying that there were very bad people and we couldn't risk that, which was a bunch of bullshit. Very infuriating. Very infuriating. We have mechanisms to allow people to come here in cases of natural disaster like this, of no fault of their own. So anyway, and then the the Trump administration is denying temporary protected status for people from the Bahamas who were already in the United States that were seeking refuge with relatives and things. And what that does is that gives them permission to work and stay here. 
um, because they have nowhere to go back to. We have about 300,000 people in this country from 10 different countries under temporary protected status from refugees to, you know, um, people from Honduras and other places that were leaving, um, escaping wars, Haitians from the herd, that, that um, earthquake. So, it, it, I mean, this is what TPS is for. And I think, and I've said this before, I said it on Twitter, I think the only reason why that the president said no was because they're not from Norway. Okay? He tried to say, you know, he just disparaged them because I'm sorry, because they're not, you know, they're people of color and he doesn't like it and he doesn't want them going to to Florida and then they they possibly get, get to get their relatives to vote and things like that and it's all it's about. He's a heartless bastard and this is another example of that. Well, here are people who are not heartless and here's the feel-good part of this story. So, because the Bahamas, you know, there, there are dozens and dozens of islands there. It's not just Freeport, you know, there's lots of islands in the Bahamas. And they're only, I don't know, 30 miles off the coast of Florida, some of them. And a lot of the cruise ship companies sail there. And they have gotten together, and I'm happy to hear this, to help with the relief efforts in the Bahamas. Because like I said, people have nothing. It looks like an atomic bomb went off in Abaco Island. And... Companies like Royal Caribbean, Disney, Carnival, Paradise, and Celebrity Cruises have gotten together, and they've helped with supplies and transport. Uh, a, a group of 3,000 passengers on the Celebrity Equinox cruise out of Fort Lauderdale last week got together and volunteered to help put together 10,000 meals and, and water, and packing it in preparation for distribution in the Bahamas. That's amazing. These were people who were on a leisure cruise and they decided to volunteer and get together and and help. They didn't have to. And I thought that was a testament of how there are good and decent people in this world. You know, it gives me hope for humanity. And you also have Chef Jose Andres, who um, was just a saint during Hurricane Irma and Maria in Puerto Rico. And now he has continued to make it a staple of his organization to help in these disaster relief efforts. And his, I think it's called the World Kitchen something. I forget now. But anyway, Jose Chef Andres, they've already served over 100,000 meals to people in the Bahamas, and they continue to. And also, if you want to help, people want to know, how do we help? So I always encourage people to go to Charity Navigator and look for local charities on the ground. I'm not a big fan of the Red Cross, even though they've they've helped, they've done their part, but there's a lot of question about where the money goes and how much is spent on administrative costs, and I don't like that. So I prefer charities that are on the ground, that are doing direct services, that are helping people, helping shelter animals, the Humane Society of the Bahamas, they're airlifting animals out that have been left homeless um, and into no-kill shelters in in the U.S., which I'm really happy to hear about. I'm an animal lover, and that's important to me as well. So if you want to help, the, the, the Bohemian government has a Bahamas relief effort. You can go to their website for that, and also go to the Charity Navigator website. you got to do a little research and see what you feel comfortable with, but there are ways to help, and we should. So on that note, thank you again for supporting the Honestly Speaking with Tara podcast. Please be sure to spread the word. Keep up the support. The, the podcast continues to grow, which is so encouraging. And you can find me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer or at Honestly underscore Tara. Or you can follow me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. I'll see you next week.